There is a question on a lot of people's minds. Am I going to be evicted? Right now, there's a nationwide eviction moratorium, but nobody knows how long that's going to last. Up until a few days ago, I thought that this was a decision that belongs to the president and to Congress and to the Supreme Court. But people who are actually experiencing this, afraid that they're going to be evicted, they know that the person who is deciding their future is often somebody like this. A lot of your tenants are taking advantage of the system, you understand? This uh, landlord here has to pay bills also. They would come in two years ago with a lot of respect for the landlord today. They feel like the government owes them, you understand? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 26th. The Supreme Court is expected to rule any day now about the future of the federal ban on evictions. A ban has been in place in some form basically since the beginning of the pandemic. One ban expired at the end of July. The CDC soon put up another one. Landlords and real estate groups have been challenging this ban in court. They say that the government doesn't have this power and that their livelihoods are on the line. The Biden administration says that it's still not safe to kick people out of their houses during a pandemic. Now it's up to the Supreme Court. But it might not even matter what the court decides. A month ago, reporter Marissa Lang flew down to Mississippi to talk to renters who are facing eviction. And she got there right as the CDC announced that they were putting in this new temporary eviction ban. The details were sort of slow to come out. It was going to be a partial moratorium. It wouldn't have the same national sweep that the original moratorium would have. And it was tied to where the spread of the coronavirus was highest in the country. And in Biloxi... Eviction court happens on Wednesday. That's the day that all housing disputes are heard. I'm going to come with y'all to court. Oh, uh, yeah. oh you'll be late this time. I thought you'll be late By the time I walked into the courtroom on Wednesday morning, the new moratorium had been released and it looked like the entire state of Mississippi was covered under these new parameters. So I was thinking okay, well, let's see how this plays out in court, assuming that now that this new moratorium was in place, a large number of tenants who were going to be called in that day would be spared. And maybe that was going to be the story I was there to tell. Some people were saved, but what I found was the vast majority of eviction cases went through anyway. Of all of the eviction cases that I saw play out in court that day, about 90% of them resulted in lockouts. Why? How could they still be evicted if the moratorium had been extended? So what we're seeing is that in a lot of places, particularly in the American South, the moratorium is only as good as its enforcement. And what that means is it's up to judges. Each judge has the ability to enforce the moratorium as much or as little in their courtroom as they see fit. Wait, really? Yeah. How? If the federal government says that it has to be this way, then like, how does a judge just get the latitude to be able to decide, okay, we're actually not going to pay attention to that? 
In some cases, judges are basing that decision on some of the legal challenges that the moratorium is facing. So in states and places where there has been a legal challenge that has gone up to a federal appellate court, for example, if the appellate court has said, "Mm, they don't think this is legal, a local judge might point to that and say, well, then I don't have to enforce this in my courtroom. Hmm. You also have judges who are enforcing the moratorium in a strict way, which means that if a tenant has done all of the things that they need to do, they've filled out this declaration of hardship from the CDC, they've given it to their landlord, the only problem with their tenancy is that they haven't paid rent. The judge is saying, yeah, I can't do anything about that. But in every other case, which includes some cases where people's leases have expired, you know, this is the second year of the pandemic, people's leases have run out. And so if a landlord says, I'm actually not here on a non-payment of rent issue, I'm here because this person's lease is up and I want them out of my apartment, judges are evicting for that reason. So in most cases that I witnessed, the people who I saw were evicted anyway. And one of those people was a young mom who I met down there named Jennifer Cage. My name's Marissa. Nice to meet you. Hi. She is a single mom who I met. She lives in Biloxi, Mississippi, and she has been working as a housekeeper at some of the hotels along the Gulf Coast. She is immunocompromised. She has sickle cell anemia. She has asthma. And she actually got COVID last year and got really sick. And that is when her problems began. She had to take off of work for two weeks when she came down with the coronavirus and she lost her job. And that was when she started to really struggle to pay rent. So you put money down and then the late fee gets tacked on. It's like it's like you're climbing a hill. More. You, so you can't you, get to the top. Right, so how you expect me to give that? Mm-hmm. Jennifer is one of the few people who I met uh, who had a lawyer going into court that day. She's represented through this nonprofit called the Mississippi Center for Justice. So how did you find your way to, to this Tell you the truth, right I don't even know. All I know, I've been calling up every all type of numbers, you know what I'm saying, just trying to look out for help or try to get answers on what is the problem where I can't get something or what is the problem. And I sat in with Jennifer and her attorney before court that day when her attorney basically told her, we were going to have to make a really technical argument to try to keep you in your house. But since the Biden administration reapproved this moratorium, that's actually really good news. We think this applies to you. So I believe that argument that you're covered by the CDC moratorium is going to carry the day. Okay, we should be successful with that. Um, And so that means you can't be evicted before October 3rd. Jennifer went into court that day, I think, feeling pretty optimistic. But what ended up happening was because her landlord pivoted and said, actually, I'm not here because she hasn't paid. I'm here because her lease is up. Jennifer got evicted. Oh, wow. What was her reaction when that happened, especially if she'd gotten this indication from her lawyers that she was going to be okay? She was really devastated. I followed her out of the courtroom into the parking lot and she just started crying. I could tell that she felt like she didn't know what to do next. Nah, I'm a single female. She got me messed up. She got me ready to take me. Yeah. So what, what are you... Three days, I don't get it. Yeah. But I'm finna go look for me somewhere. 
she pulled up on her phone some numbers for local housing complexes, apartment complexes, and just started calling people in front of me, asking if they had any units available. She told me and her attorney that she didn't know if she could go to work tomorrow because now she had to go look for a place to live. She's got three kids, and she was really adamant that she was not going to be homeless, that she was not going to put them through that. But I could tell she was really scared. After the break, we will hear from someone that we don't often hear from, the judge that ruled to evict Jennifer. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Judge Albert Fountain sat down with me for an interview after eviction cases wrapped up that day. So I was curious about how how has the pandemic changed the kinds of evictions you're seeing? How has the moratorium affected what kind of cases you're presiding over? I would just love to hear, you know, your insights on, on that. Marissa, let me tell you, we've been going through this for over a year now. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, I feel sorry for the tenants. I feel sorry, not all of them, some of them. A lot of your tenants are taking advantage of the system, you understand? He's been a justice court judge down in Biloxi for more than 25 years and told me that he's really upset about how this moratorium, he feels, has changed the dynamic between tenants and landlords. He told me that He feels like tenants who come into his court feel as if the government owes them something. We're just taking advantage of the situation. And it's gotten me angry to the fact that they're really turning the system around. We used to have a, I mean, a really good system here. Now, today compared to two years ago, it's different like daylight and dark. What was it like two years ago? Like, can you give me the comparison? Well, they, they would come in two years ago with a lot of respect for the landlord. Today, they feel like the government owes them, you understand? And it's a horrible situation, Marissa. I'm going to tell you that right now. He feels like two years ago, before the pandemic, they were much more respectful and deferential to the property owners. Judge Fountain told me he's a conservative. He doesn't agree with the direction that the CDC has taken this moratorium. And he feels bad for these landlords who he said are really being hurt by this eviction pause because they're not getting paid what they're owed. Hmm. What did you make of that when he said that? It really tracked with what I saw when he was presiding over cases in court. He did a lot of things during the day that led me to believe that he had sort of a predisposition toward the landlords and the property owners. Even in cases, for example, when he didn't evict folks because they were there on a non-payment issue, he would look at the tenants and say something like, really, four months, you can't pay him anything? 
the law says you shall make every effort to pay. So that's to try to a, a push partial, them. yes, ma'am. Okay. See what I'm saying? And that's that's what I'm giving that time to come back in two weeks to do that. Scare tactics. And then he would tell them to come back in two weeks and say, next time I see you, I want to see that you've made some payments. So even though he didn't have the power necessarily to evict them, according to the moratorium, he would still do things that kind of nudge them in this direction of, well, you have to pay something, even if you're unemployed, even if you're struggling right now. I don't believe that you can't pay anything. So do something about it. I'm curious what the judge is describing here, you know, wanting to see people at least try to pay some of their rent. Did you talk to tenants about whether they were doing that? Yeah, I did. Several tenants told me that they've tried to make partial payments to their landlords, whatever they could that month and whatever they had. And in a lot of cases, their landlords wouldn't take it. Jennifer Cage, for example, showed me a series of text messages that she had sent to her landlord where she said, I can't pay the full amount right now, but here's what I can do. And her landlord did not want to take that lesser amount of money. Do you think that there's truth to the idea that landlords are hurting because they haven't been paid in some cases in months and months? I tried to reach out to some landlords while I was in court in Mississippi, and they didn't want to talk to me. A number of landlords that I followed up with didn't feel comfortable discussing the particulars of their financial situation. It's a really difficult issue, and a lot of people don't really want to talk about it. But for some landlords, especially smaller mom and pop landlords, these houses or apartments can be their investments. It might be their retirement savings. It might be a source of income. And so in some cases, the landlords not getting paid for months at a time or a year could be financially hurtful and stressful for these families that rely on that as a source of income. The majority of the landlords that I saw in court in Biloxi were not these mom and pop landlords. Many of them were large apartment complexes or corporate landlords that own a large number of properties. And according to folks who study evictions over at the eviction lab, these are the landlords that are driving the majority of evictions in the United States. And there are programs in place that are supposed to be able to help them recoup whatever payments they're not getting from their tenants. But because states and local jurisdictions have been the ones who have to actually administer this money and hand it out, there's been a lot of problems with the rollout. And most of the people who have applied for this relief haven't gotten it. And in Mississippi, most of that rent relief more than 90% of that rent relief has not been paid out. Hmm. And I'm curious, what was the reaction from Jennifer's lawyer or other lawyers that you talked to who are trying to defend people from being evicted? Well, he told me that he thought it was the wrong call. He said that basically, even if the law allows you to evict someone like Jennifer in this case, that ethically he did not think that it was the right decision because for someone like her who has all of these medical conditions, is a single mother and doesn't have anywhere to go, being put out, put out on the street or made to go to a shelter or some other communal living situation could be a death sentence. But what he said about the judge was, hey, at least this judge knew the moratorium existed and seemed to, in some cases, adhere to it. The problem is because so many of these cases are judge dependent. 
the outcome really varies, not just county by county, but judge by judge. So while this judge was approving the vast majority of eviction cases, he did stop some where the issue of non-payment was the main issue that the landlord was taking the tenant to court for. There are judges in other states, in Texas, in Ohio, and Tennessee, that are wholesale ignoring the moratorium altogether. Wow. I'm wondering what are some of the other problems that people run into when they try to get the eviction moratorium enforced and to be able to stay in the place where they're living if they can't pay? It's really hard for most tenants to put up a defense in housing court. For starters, most of them don't have lawyers. Jennifer was one of the lucky ones. She was one of the few who showed up in court that day with an attorney. Most tenants are defending themselves and they may not have a mastery of housing law or even know what their rights are. A lot of housing advocates that I've talked to said that they really believe that most tenants in this country still don't even know if the moratorium applies to them, how to assert it. And then on top of that, you have the logistics of having to go to court. For a lot of these tenants, going to court means missing a day of work, or maybe it means taking a hit to their wages or having to find childcare or having to find transportation. There was one woman who ran into court 30 minutes after her case was called because she works at Walmart and she said she couldn't get off her shift in time to catch the bus. So she was late to her hearing. And by the time she got there, her case had been called and the judge had ruled and she had been ordered to be locked out of her house. And he told her there was nothing he can do about it. Oh my gosh. It just, stories like that are so at odds with how we hear the eviction moratorium being talked about that like, okay, the moratorium has been extended and so everyone's good. They can stay in their houses for longer. So it's just so surprising to hear about how that's not necessarily the case for a lot of people for whom this applies to. Exactly. People seem to think that the moratorium existing is preventing everyone who's being threatened with eviction from being evicted. And then when it ends, all of a sudden, we're going to hit this cliff where everybody falls off the cliff. But it's so much more complicated than that. And in many places in this country, the moratorium effectively has been dead and gone for a long time for a lot of renters who are out of options. And so you have people who are being pushed into situations where they're maybe living with vulnerable family members or friends, or they don't have a stable place to live. So they're hopping from one place to another. All of that makes them more vulnerable to catching the coronavirus. There's one renter who I talked to, Shay Mills, who essentially self-evicted. She was exhausted by having to go to court, keep fighting after another eviction notice showed up on her doorstep. And so she decided, you know what, I'm just going to move back in with my parents. And two weeks later, she texted me and said she tested positive for the coronavirus. So what happens when the moratorium completely disappears, when it expires and it doesn't get extended? What advocates tell me is that in places where judges have decided to be proactive and enforce the moratorium, that protection goes away. So we're going to start seeing what may already be happening in some places happening in many more places. 
also going to see landlords who perhaps in good faith didn't file for eviction against their tenant because they knew the moratorium was in place. So they held off uh, putting anything in writing are now going to see that as a green light to proceed if that renter hasn't fully paid up what they owe. So it's certainly possible that even in places where evictions are happening, we will start to see more of them. Marissa Lang covers housing for The Post. This story was produced by Sabby Robinson. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernofsky. The Post is continuing to cover these last tragic days of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. On Thursday, there were two explosions by Kabul airport. Dozens of Afghan civilians were killed, along with 12 U.S. service members. Tomorrow, we'll tell you more about what we know about that attack. We'll also hear an interview with an Afghan journalist who was able to leave Kabul, but her family is still stuck there. Maybe the day I traveled, I still had some hopes. But right now, I don't see any hope. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs> 